Well, in the lead up to, to Christmas, we're looking at uh, what uh, I'm calling Christmas Psalms. They're kind of Christmas carols from the Old Testament. Uh, we know that they are because they're messianic psalms. So they're songs about the Messiah. And so they're obviously Christmas carols, aren't they? And this is perhaps a very well-known one, Psalm 98. We sang it at the beginning of our meeting tonight. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. That comes from Psalm 98, and that's what I want us to look at tonight. So if you want to open that in your Bibles or your devices, that's what we're looking at. It's quite a short psalm. See, one of the many things that we do as Christians uh, is sing. Not always in tune, but we do know how to make a noise, how to make a joyful noise uh, to the Lord, don't we? And that's one of the distinguishing marks of uh, Christian worship. In fact, it's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from a lot of other world religions. We sing. Uh, of course, we're not the only ones who sing. Sporting crowds sing in stadiums. Partying crowds sing in pubs. Singing is, is a way to express joy. And as I say, one of the best known so of, of all the songs that we sing at Christmas is this one, Psalm 98. So let's take a look at it. Um, I just wanted you to see, first of all, at, at, just very quickly at a glance, the shape of the psalm. It's like when you drop a, a stone into a pool of water, you get these uh, expanding waves, these ever-expanding waves. And the, this psalm is like that. It starts with Israel in verses 1 to 3. And then it widens out in verses 4 to 6 to all people everywhere who are called upon to worship Israel's God. And then in verses 7 to 9, the whole creation sings for joy. And it just gets, this psalm, it just gets louder and louder and more and more raucous. Uh, God's people are singing. Uh, the nations are shouting. And the sea is roaring. So, put your headphones on and let's listen to this uh, this song tonight. So first of all, listen to the singing. Listen to God's people singing. What are they singing about? Well, look at verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. What does that mean? Uh, does it mean that we have to throw out the hymn book and stop singing old songs? Is that what it means? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. It, what is this new song? It's, 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 you see, it, this new song is new in the sense that it's a fresh response to what God has done. You, you see it, for example, in Psalm 40, in David's testimony. It's a great testimony of David in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, he says. He, he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. That's how David felt. He was in a quicksand. He was sinking and sinking. Felt as if he was going to perish. And, and, and he lifted me out of that slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? Out of the mire into the choir. It's quite a testimony. That's what it means to sing a new song. It doesn't mean hill song as opposed to ancient and modern or contemporary as opposed to traditional. It's a new song in the sense that it is fresh. It is a new response to what God has done for you in Christ. Sing to the Lord a new song. You see, what, that's what God does when he saves us. He puts a new song in our mouths. Sing to the Lord a new song for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. See, whenever God acts to save his people... New songs are written. 
So in the Exodus, when God saved his people from Egypt, from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, Moses' sister Miriam wrote a new song. It's in Exodus chapter 15. It's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. And, and now God has done it again for his people. He's rescued them now, not from Exodus, but from exile. Not from Egypt, but from Babylon. And, and that's what this psalm celebrates. It's, it's a new song, a fresh outpouring of praise to God because he's brought them back from exile. But I want, what I want, want us to see tonight is this. What, what, what God did for his people in the Exodus and what he did for his people in the exile is only a pale shadow of what he's going to do for us in Jesus. See, that's why when Mary finds out that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Messiah, she bursts into song. She sings a new song. We call it the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me <clears throat> and holy is his name. <clears throat> God is going to do again what he does best. In the birth of Jesus, he's coming down to deliver his people, but on a much grander scale than ever before. See, in the, in the birth of Jesus, God has come to rescue us not from the tyranny of, of, of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt, but from the tyranny of sin and the power of Satan and the fear of death, which keeps people in slavery all their lifetime. In, in the birth of Jesus, God has come not to save us from exile in Babylon, but to save us and to bring us back from the far country to himself. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? God and sinners reconciled. And the whole world needs to hear this. It needs to go global. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth need to see the salvation of our God. Sometimes unbelievers uh, have a, a deeper insight into these things than, than we do. You know, Last Christmas I was reading a, a very interesting article uh, written by a non-Christian journalist. And the, the, uh, the, the, the title of the article was How Little Lord Jesus Grew Up to Order a Big Global Conquest. It's an interesting article coming from the pen of a, a non-Christian journalist. And, and alongside, uh, alongside the article was this cute little nativity scene, which you can see on the screen, with the baby Jesus in the manger, saying to his parents, saying to Mary and Joseph, Go. Uh, little toddlers do say that to their parents a lot. <laughs> but that's, uh, this, is, this is different, isn't it? This is the Great Commission. And, and this is what he says, this non-Christian author. He says, That two-letter word, go, won't win you many points in Scrabble, but it has changed the world. And he says, just you remember this, when you sing away in a manger this Christmas day, you need to realize that this little baby asleep in the hay grew up to be a man who changed the course of history in ways that are still playing out today. It's quite an insight, isn't it, from a non-Christian? So true, isn't it? Gives us something to sing about, doesn't it? I mean, how do you get Australians to sing? I mean, I'm Welsh. We, we just naturally sing. We've been singing since before we were born. <laughs> it's in our blood. It's in our genes. But coming to Australia, ah, well, how do you get Australians to sing? Cricket, yeah, they sing. 
See, they, they sing about nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> it, it, how, I mean, how do, how do we improve? The, how do we how do we improve the singing here at Soul Church if we need to? I don't know if we do need to improve it. It's pretty good, I think. But, uh, but, but what do you? How do you go about improving congregational praise in a church? It's not about the musicians. Uh, it, it's it's not about um, you know. Um, it's not about the musicians at all. In fact, it's about the message. People need to have something to sing about, don't they? The reason that singing is so bad in a lot of churches is that there's no message. <laughs> no clear message coming through. There's an uncertain sound coming out of the pulpit. And you see, to improve the music here at Soul Church, we don't, we, we, you don't do it by sending the musicians to a music conference or into a recording studio. studio. How do you improve the music at Soldiers? It's not by telling them to rehearse more. They rehearse all the time. They come here early on a Sunday afternoon and they rehearse. They don't need to rehearse. We need to rehearse. We, the congregation, we need to do what the psalmist is doing here. We need to rehearse the mighty works of God. We need to be talking amongst ourselves over there in the supper room afterwards about the great things that God has done for us. We need to be singing new songs, fresh songs. Because the Lord has done mighty things for us. And when you see and appreciate what God has done for you in Christ, you'll sing your hearts out, won't you? The key to good singing is gospel preaching. Soul Church, never make the mistake of substituting preaching with music. Don't make the mistake, as a lot of churches have, that they think the way they're going to reach the world is by having, having really top-of-the-range music and musicians. No, no, my friends. We need good preaching. And then we'll have good music. Then we'll sing in response to what the Lord has done for us. So sing to the Lord a new song. Now prepare yourselves because the decibel level of this psalm is about to go through the roof. You notice there from verse 4 onwards. It's a very noisy psalm, this psalm. Shout to the Lord, it says. <laughs> verse 4. I'm trying to keep you awake. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Now that's very un-Presbyterian, isn't it? Uh, an explosion of praise. It, it, it's like being um, in a giant sports stadium when your team scores the winning goal. The whole stadium erupts. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. This is the sort of party that gets complaints from the neighbors. In uh, in 2015, apparently, when ACDC performed in Auckland, New Zealand, people phoned in from five miles away complaining about the noise. <laughs> it was so loud, all the car alarms in the car park were set off by the reverberations. <laughs> well, we can do better than that, so church. <laughs> we can set off all the car alarms in North Hobart. As God's people, we've really got something to shout about. What God has done for us in Christ is so good, we want everyone to hear about it. We, we want everyone to hear about it. It's such a frustration when you're a preacher and you preach Christmas after Christmas because, you know, there's kind of there's a... People's eyes glaze over and we sing the carols and we're so familiar with them and we've all heard the Christmas stories and people are dropping off to sleep in the pews and I feel like really shouting at them. <laughs> because this is the most stupendous news that we've got for the world, isn't it? 
Uh, you see, that's the significance, I think, of the ram's horn here. I, I, I won't comment on all the musical instruments that are mentioned here, but except for the ram's horn there in verse 6, that's significant because after God rescued Israel from Egypt and they gathered at Mount Sinai, it was the blast of the ram's horn that announced that God had come down to be with his people. That's what the people of Devonport need to know. He's seen our misery, he's heard our cry, and he's come down to deliver us. That's the significance of the ram's horn. That's the message we have for the people of Tasmania this Christmas time. He has seen our plight, he's heard our cries, and he's come down to deliver us in Christ. There's a lot of shouting in the streets nowadays, isn't there? Protest movements, climate change activists, anti-vaxxers. You know, every night on the news, somewhere in the world, you'll see the banners and you'll hear the shouts. People need something to shout about. They need a cause that they can get behind. It, it gives them purpose and meaning in life. I can understand that. But here's something worth shouting about. Jesus is Lord. That is a revolutionary statement. That simple confession overthrew the Roman Empire. Those three words, Jesus is Lord. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to call for regime change. <laughs> That's why Christianity is always a threat to those in power, especially to totalitarian regimes. That's why Christians are being persecuted in places like China and Russia and North Korea and Myanmar. To say that Jesus is Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury is not known for being a bold, <laughs> brave person. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he was involved a few years ago in a public exchange with a politician, with a senior government official. He, he actually accused the government of being religiously illiterate <laughs> and having a seriously flawed view of religious extremism. That was brave of him to say that as a public person. Someone whose faith is more important than the rule of law is surely an extremist, said the politician. Well, said the archbishop, you've got a problem because my faith is more important than the rule of law. So you've got an extremist sitting here right in front of you. He said that on BBC television. He says, we don't believe as Christians that the rule of law outweighs everything else. We believe that the kingdom of God outweighs everything else. And that's what this psalm is saying. This psalm is calling for regime change. It's calling on people everywhere to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's calling on all the nations, all the different cultures, to recognize that Jesus is Lord. And if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So shout it out, the psalm is saying. Yeah. You see, your faith is not private. That's the thing that they, you know, Christian politicians often say this, oh, well, when they get interviewed, uh, do you have any religious beliefs? Oh, they say, that's a, that's a private matter. It's between me and, and God, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you. But, but our faith is not a private matter. It's not just simply a personal thing. Our faith is, is it's, it's public. So shout, shout it out, the psalmist says. Go and tell the nations, Jesus says. The gospel has universal relevance. This this message of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom must first be preached to all nations before the end comes, before Jesus returns. 
So it has universal relevance, it, it, and, and it has cosmic consequences as well. That's the third thing. Look at the last section of the psalm from verse 7 onwards. This really is a noisy psalm. God's people are singing, the nations are shouting, and the sea is roaring. See what it says? Let the, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Now, of course, that's poetry. But the point is simply this. The worship of God is, is not just something that we're told to do. It's something that we're designed for. See, what is the chief end of man? The Westminster Catechism asks us that question. What is the chief purpose of our existence? What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're designed for. So when we share the gospel with people, we're not just, you know, we're not like some sort of cult trying to get people, you know, win people over into our way of thinking or into our worldview. We're actually doing them a favor. We're introducing them to the one who made them. To become a Christian is, 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 to, is, is to answer the, the reason for which you've been designed. It's to glorify God and to, to enjoy him forever. And that's what this psalm is telling us. That So everything that bears the maker's mark is designed for the maker's praise. That's what this psalm is saying. Everything that bears the maker's mark is designed for the maker's praise. Every atom in the universe was designed to vibrate to the glory of God. I don't know if you did those little experiments in primary school with seeds. And you, you, know, you plant them in a pot in a darkened room and nothing much happens. The seed doesn't grow. It just waits there until you bring it out into the light into the sunlight, and then it explodes with light, with life. And creation is like that. It's dormant, it's waiting. The rocks are sleeping, the trees are waiting. Waiting for what? For the light to dawn. For the daylight from on high to visit us. For the presence of God to cover the earth again. Uh, and my friends, if the trees and the hills and the stones are going to clap their hands and dance for joy, what are you going to do? in that day what will it be like for us for those of us who've trusted in Jesus as our King and Savior what a glorious day that's going to be when he returns isn't it not as a baby this time in a manger but on the clouds of glory as the rightful ruler of the universe when he comes back it's not just wrongs that are going to be righted. It's not just broken things that are going to be mended. It's even inert and latent things will explode with life when he comes back. That's what we have to look forward to. C.S. Lewis captures it so well in the, in, in the, the Narnia Chronicles, doesn't he? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He talks about Narnia under the spell of the White Witch where it's always winter and never Christmas. Isn't that how it's felt during the last two years? I think the Coles ad. Have you seen the Coles ad? Talks, it's, it's got a song, could it be this? It's got a song by Neil Diamond, I think it's called Beautiful Noise. I should have used that as the title for this talk. This psalm is a beautiful noise. And, and the Coles ad, ad so the, the, the people in the Coles ad have sort of picked up on the, the fact that we, we're waiting for joy. Is this the joy that you've been waiting for? <laughs> we've been waiting for it for two years. We've been separated from our families. We haven't been able to celebrate. And, uh, we've been fearful of what's happening in the world and, and the joy you've been waiting for, it's there at Coles. <laughs> you can go and buy it from Coles. You can have 24 hours of you know, turkey and ham and all sorts of things and that's the joy that you've been waiting for, is it? <laughs> is it? 
What happens when the true king returns? Lewis describes it like this in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He says, I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, 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 and presently trickle, trickle. I rather disliked the feeling, he said. That's how it is when Jesus comes into your life. That's how it is when the true king comes, when Aslan is on the move. And that's what creation is waiting for. That the rocks and the hills and the rivers and the trees. Paul tells us in Romans that the whole creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. This natural world is out of joint. You can hear it groaning, can't you? That the sky is shedding tears of acid rain. The seas have been overfished and are complaining about human greed. The earth is poisoned by nuclear waste and chemical affluent. The barrier reef is dying and mourns the loss of its coral. And the whole creation is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And when's that going to happen? <laughs> Not until human sin and rebellion is finally dealt with and Jesus returns to this earth. And that brings me then to the climax of this psalm. Look at verse 9. Let them sing before the Lord, it says. Verse 9. For he comes to judge the earth. Now isn't that a bit weird? All this singing and rejoicing and shouting for joy. Because he comes to judge. Everybody's clapping their hands and singing for joy. Why? Because he's coming to judge the earth. I don't know if you know this, but as a minister of religion, I don't have to do jury duty. I'm, I'm exempt from jury duty. I don't know why that is. Perhaps they don't trust us. Perhaps they think we're too much of a soft touch or something. I don't know. Or we know too much about people. I don't, I don't know why we're exempt, but I've never had to do jury service. But I think it's true to say that no one is really ever happy in a courtroom. It's not a place where people party, is it? So what's going on here? How can judgment be something to sing about and shout about? How can judgment be good news? P.D. James uh, is a writer of detective novels, and in her novel, Original Sin, Kate, one of the main characters, says to her Jewish friend, I don't go in for all this emphasis on sin, suffering, and judgment. If I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful, and amusing. To which her Jewish friend said, I doubt whether you'd find such a God much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might prefer a God of vengeance. That's right, isn't it? Think of what's happened in Devonport this week. A terrible accident. But Jesus was born into a world like that, wasn't he? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, a whole townload of toddlers were slaughtered by Herod the king. Deep down within all of us, there is this longing for justice to be done, isn't there? Even with the Devonport thing, there's an outpouring of compassion and love towards the families, but there's also this call for who's responsible for this? Who's to blame for this? See, that, that's, that's why we cheer in movies when the bad guy gets what's coming to him. It's, it's the reason we rage against the system when we feel that we've been taken advantage of. It's why human rights are so prominent in our political discourse. Justice. Justice just is. 
I saw that written on a wall in London when I lived there. Justice just is, it just is. And if there's no final reckoning, then life is meaningless, it's purposeless, isn't it? But isn't it good to know that the Lord is coming, that Jesus is coming to judge? Jesus. He's not the hanging judge, he's not uh, Judge Jeffries, he's not, it's Jesus who's got our best interests at heart, who knows us through and through, who knows our motivations and knows everything about us. Jesus is coming to judge and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will judge because he cares. He cares about how we treat one another. He cares about what we're doing to our planet. And he's coming. He's coming to address that. We might sweep these things under the carpet, but he's not going to. The Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's good news, isn't it? But it's also scary news because there's no diplomatic immunity. There are no exceptions. We too will be judged. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, how can we sing? How do we, how do we face that prospect? Well, the answer is here in this psalm, isn't it? Because I mean, what's the psalm all about? What is the theme of this psalm? It's salvation, not judgment. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This song is all about salvation. Yes, there's judgment coming. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be saved from God. Do you realize that? We need to be saved from the wrath of God. He is an angry God. He's angry with us every day because he cares about us. And he loves us. That's why he's angry. And he's coming. He's coming to judge. But judgment is his strange work. He is rich in compassion. He is full of mercy. John Stott puts it like this, I think, very helpfully, as he always does. He's, he says, the essence of sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. That's what we've done. That's our problem. We climbed onto his throne. If I rule the world, we sing at our funerals. <laughs> the essence of sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. But the essence of salvation, says John Stott, is God putting himself in our place. <laughs> and that's what God has done for us in Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord has come to put himself in our place. Joy to the world. The Lord has come into this sin-cursed world. This world that's in rebellion against its maker. The maker has come. The creator has stepped into his own creation. He's put himself where we deserve to be. He's paid the penalty for us. At the cross, love and justice meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Justice and joy combine. Hallelujah, what a saviour. 
That uh, Cole's Christmas ad is a brilliant piece of marketing. It tells us that the joy we've all been waiting for has arrived, and so we can get it at Cole's. It's clever, isn't it? Because people are aching for it after these last two years. Uh, the desire for joy, true joy, is definitely present in our, in our city, in people's hearts. But you won't get it in the supermarket. You'll find it here in this beautifully noisy psalm. This is the joy we've all been waiting for. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. You can't buy it at Coles. Jesus purchased it with his own blood. And it's forever, not just for Christmas Day. Not just for 24 hours. My daughter, when she was a difficult teenager, she, she kind of had a personality change on Christmas Day. She was really nice to me all day. <laughs> I said, what's, I couldn't, I, it, just, it freaked me out. <laughs> I, I, eventually I said, well, what's, yeah, what, what have I done? <laughs> she said, it's Christmas, Dad. <laughs> and uh, Boxing Day was a different experience. <laughs> and man shall live forevermore, the, you know, the hymns, the old sentimental carol says, and man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day? Of course not. What's Christmas Day? It's just a date on a calendar. Christmas Day, it's nothing. Just getting drunk and eating too much food, isn't it? And enjoying having some time with the relatives. And that, that's lovely, that's okay, isn't it? But you're not going to live forevermore because of that. It's because, of, because he, saw, he saw our misery and he heard our cries and he came down to deliver us. That's the message that we've got to get out there. We've got to shout it out to this state of Tasmania, haven't we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful song, this psalm. We thank you that it points us so very clearly to Jesus. Lord, you're the God who uh, rescues your people. You did it at the Exodus, you did it in the exile, and you've done it now once and for all in the person of your Son who came to save us from our sins and bring us back from the far country and bring us into a relationship with you that will last forever. A relationship of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen.